this uh, talk, these talks are part of the Literary Festival at LSE, which goes on through to Saturday on the theme of revolutions. And this evening's theme is experiments in living and working, which perhaps we could translate as experiments in community and in the dissolving of the space between living and working, <coughs> the dissolving of hard categories. Um, and it's a huge pleasure to have Matt Cook and Sue O'Sullivan here. Housekeeping, please will you all turn your phones off or down to silent? If you use Twitter, the hashtag for today's events is hashtag capital letters LSE litfest, all one word. We will have two talks and then time for questions to both speakers. And at the end of the session, um, there will be a book signing as Matt's queer domesticities will be on sale in paperback just outside. Um, but we will start with Sue O'Sullivan, who, as many of you will know, has worked on many collectives and famously on the Spare Rib editorial. And I hope she'll talk about this and any other collective that <laughs> ought to be remembered by this audience. <laughs> Well, as you know, I'm Sue O'Sullivan, and I've been active in the women's liberation movement from 1969 um, until the present, whatever form you think the women's movement is taking now. I guess I'm somewhere in that. Spare Rib, as some of you may know, was published um, regularly. Every is, this, is this on? Oh, okay. Sorry. Spare Rib was published um, as a monthly magazine from 1972 until the beginning of 1993. I was on the collective from, can you hear now? Can you hear now? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, from 1979 until 1984 as a full-time member of the collective and then for another four years as a part-time member taking care of the health pages. I went on to be a member of Sheba Feminist Press, which didn't have collective in its title, but certainly organized itself as a collective. I was also on Feminist Review, which still to this day calls itself a collective, although a very different kind, a very academic kind. Um, and on, I was on Red Rag in the early 70s, which was a left-wing um, journal that came out uh, originally from the Communist Party and then widened out for others like myself to join. Along with workshops, collectives were all over the place in the 70s and 80s. Spare Rib was not originally one, but very quickly became one. And they were a part of the radical politics of the time, not just in the women's liberation movement but they seem to hold a particularly strong place within feminist organizations and projects. For instance, Cunning Stunts Theater Group explained they were devising work collectively. Outright Newspaper wrote as a collective. The Women Painters Collective aimed to organize collective quarterly exhibitions, 
Jamaica's Sistrans Women's Theatre Collective was active at the time and visited here. Collectives could be like spare rig places which regularly produce something like a magazine or food or art or delivered a service and so on. But they could also be places intent on political action. Or as my friend Sue Katz wrote to me recently from the United States, from the beginning of the women's movement, I lived in communes made of a collective. We did actions, we did whatever came to be called consciousness raising, and we did life together. With the beginning of the lesbian movement, we lived in apartments with maybe four or five people from the collective in one apartment with others from the collective in nearby apartments. Oh, the rental market was different then. It was almost like a commune, but not, at all, not all in a house, but always in a collective. So why were feminist collectives so common in the 70s and 80s? Early women's liberationists had declared that the personal was political. In fact, we pretty much declared that everything was political. How we lived our lives, approached friendship and sexual relationships, parenthood, domestic matters, domestic lives, how we organized and approached political projects, they all mattered. So where possible, we would attempt to bring feminism into them, practically, imaginatively, and politically. Putting our passionate politics into practice was a hell of a lot more difficult, and sometimes, even often, we faltered and fucked up. We were part of what we wanted to change, but determined to break our ties to the status quo as much as possible. A more nuanced understanding of the contradictions of living and working in and against the state came a bit later and never to everyone. But for me, this is where the notion of contradiction came into play and never left my mind or politics. Working in a collective as feminists was an attempt to challenge patriarchal and capitalist hierarchical structures of responsibility, power, and decision-making. Don't forget it. The anti-authoritarian, anti-hierarchical approach wasn't just about work. It was also about creativity itself, about cultural and social engagement. As well, it was a challenge to the whole notion of expertise, within, which within male-dominated social arrangements usually meant male experts. Liber early women's liberationists said, for instance, that doctors were not necessarily experts on childbirth that it was our bodies, our lives, they presumed to lord it over, and that in the majority of births, medical intervention was not necessary. Spare Rib, in Spare Rib, we ran many articles on pre pregnancy and childbirth challenging these ideas, as we ran many other articles which challenged many areas. In fact, it was not so much expertise itself that women were protesting about. It was conservative, male-dominated cultures of exclusive expertise. Transforming hierarchies of power and expertise meant that we didn't want to simply replace men with women and continue as before. We wanted to share responsibilities and open up the acquisition of new skills. We would gain confidence and share out the shipwork. This was what we were aiming at on Spare Rib. Well, how did it work in practice? At Spare Rib, we discussed everything. 
and it took a long time. Everyone had an equal say. We rarely, if ever, voted. Easy if everyone more or less agreed, endless if they didn't, or if the disagreements were deep. There was a one-half-day um, collective meeting every week to discuss the magazine, planning current and future issues, what articles were in hand, what we needed. Readers were encouraged to suggest articles or propose writing them themselves with as much editorial support as they needed from the collective. Every feature article, not counting the many news stories we, uh, we, we uh, printed, was read by the whole collective, and we didn't stint in the comments scrawled in the margins of the one or two copies of an article which circulated. Remember, there were no computers, no printers. We didn't even have a photocopier for most of the time I was there. When it came to equally sharing out areas of responsibility or expertise, not as many collective members enthusiastically embraced learning more about how finances worked or how to keep the books. Many more collective members wanted to remain in editorial work. Some jobs were given more worth in terms of public recognition than others. One woman who was hired to do the subscriptions recalled feeling undervalued, and she had to make a fuss to be allowed to learn more about writing for the mag. Not surprisingly, or unfortunately, she was one of the few working-class women on the collective at that point. Alison Reed says about the um, publication distribution collective that she worked on, which was upstairs from Spare Rib in Clark and Will Close. At PDC, we were better at political discussions and decisions than commercial ones. Working collectively, everyone being equal, we never worked out how to successfully talk about basic work issues, such as timekeeping and co-op members doing a fair share of the work. Although one of the ways we worked on a daily basis was to share out all the donkey work, like cleaning, collecting huge bags of post, answering the phone, washing up in the dingy bathroom. Still, some women participated in these rotating tasks with more grace than others. Spare Rib was part of the women's liberation movement. All of us came from the movement to Spare Rib. This was both a strength and a burden, Women in the women's liberation movement had expectations of the ma magazine and weren't slow to voice their criticisms. We had to take notice. But we were a newsstand magazine as well, and women we wanted to reach out to who knew little or nothing of some of the issues dividing the movement, for instance, were deeply confused, bemused, or put off by our content. As well... We were faced with deep and growing divisions in the women's movement. I was there from 79 to 84, um, and a bit before and a bit after, um, which also manifested themselves within the collective. Accusations of racism, of anti-lesbian attitudes and behavior, of anti-Semitism, and so on, grew in intensity and bitterness meeting after meeting to discuss, the to discuss and battle out these issues were for periods of time endlessly emotional and physically draining. Don't worry, it didn't go on for 20 straight years, just when I was there. <laughs> um, what were some of the problems, hurdles, and successes? Not all the problems collectives faced were intrinsic to that way of working. 
Some collectives were successful, some were disasters, some were a bit of both and more. The collective process could be time-consuming, but very often this resulted in continual renewed passion, commitment, and understanding of the work at hand. Looking at spare rib, I can see three interrelated but distinct areas which were in operation over the years I worked there. There was the planning and doing of the magazine, raison d'etre. A lot of our collective meetings were to do with business as well, and they were relatively easy to get through. Uh, there, there weren't so many bumps in that. But much of the time was also spent discussing feminist issues, which articles brought up or that we wanted to cover. This was time-consuming, but usually a pleasure, and expanded our creative and political growth. However, and this is the third, issue, third area, these issues sometimes were so contentious or accusatory and we were so much the focus of angry and fierce criticisms from outside the collective, and these also would manifest themselves in internal divisions um, and difficulties in the collective, that they overtook everything. Black women collective members were always critical of white women's overlong and unacknowledged dominance in the collective and in the magazine's content. But at times, our discussions broke down to which the discussions we had together. We had a lot of extra collective meetings about these. More time, less pleasure. It wasn't a one-off occasion when a woman would run sobbing from the office to hide in the building toilet. But on a less dramatic note, here's what Manny Shiraz has to say. The collective work is engaging, enjoyable, exhausting, and slow. It can be women-tearing, women, women too. It is a pity that practical work takes the pleasure away from the ideal belief. Fictions sometimes get lost, or nobody likes what you've chosen. My interpretation of a news piece is not agreed on, or the woman during the film review hasn't done it on time. And what do you do when 11 women have to agree on a controversial view before it gets into the magazine? In many ways, a commitment to collective organizing and culture was in itself, I'm suggesting, it's probably obvious, a prefiguration of how we wanted wider politics to be organized. We weren't particularly interested in parliamentary politics on Spare Rib, and that's just not my view as an American who knew fuck all about it. It was the general sort of position. The 70s and 80s were such a different time. Many collective members were on the dole. Some lived in squats. Others had supportive partners. It simply would not be possible to organize workplaces like Spare Rib with the same ease as we did then. And we paid ourselves a pittance. For me, working in collectives shaped my attitude to work permanently. Collective, collective working ruined some of us for work life dealing with management, middle management, and HR. <laughs> Managers tell other people what to do and make the decisions. I'm making very broad assumptions here. We were used to playing an equal role in decision making and could never simply go along with the assumption that managers knew best. So-called leaders were often as clueless as anyone else. Radical politics were built into my experience of collective feminist working and the belief that we all have much to contribute. That's what collectives attempted to open up. 
In a hierarchical structure, people jockey for power through their relationship with the managers. In a collective, factions may form, but at least they were based on ideas and politics. We were passionate about our women's liberation politics. We wanted to change the world for women, for ourselves, for everyone else. In many ways, a commitment to collective organizing and culture, as I said, was a sort of prefiguration of how we wanted wider politics to be organized. Working collectively at its best showed a way to the sort of society we wanted to live and work in, breaking down those hierarchies, defying authoritarian leadership, all was part of it, working equally, questioning the ownership of knowledge, skills, and intelligence, opening up the untapped creativity and abilities of women, were all seen as dynamic aspects of collective working. Personally, I learned a huge amount on Sparib. Living and working and struggling, a word we all used back then, through the worst of times made it necessary for me to build a toughened feminist politics. I got a thicker skin, too. If I hadn't gone through the spare rib struggles around racism on spare rib and in the women's movement, I don't think I would have been able to develop the kind of anti-racist feminist politics which have, which have remained with me, with me ever since. The form the struggle took at that particular historical moment may have been destructive in many ways, but it also came out of very real conditions not just on spare rib, not just in the women's movement, but in the whole of British society. And when I went on to work at Sheba, which was self-consciously a mixed-race collective, we were many times more successful at negotiating our way through working together and recognizing our differences. We were almost always, in some form or another, a united collective. I was also a better writer after being on Spare Rib, and that was because I quickly learned that constructive criticism of what I wrote made my writing better. As dreary as day-to-day -day mundane work could be, in the end, we were in it for a purpose which sustained us, getting Spare Rib out each month. And we were part of a massive, far-ranging movement for social change and justice, for women but also for other oppressed groups. When the ideological struggles, which were not necessarily part of the job of producing the magazine, were in the ascendance, that was when we ended up tearing each other apart. For 20 plus years, the various collectives did manage to get the magazine out every month on time, which is absolutely a miracle. There were always bumps and weaknesses, but women remained passionate about what they were doing and why they were doing it. It was when the collective process was taken over by divisions and fierce fights about the burning issues of the time that individuals on the collective were unable to sustain the pleasure of pulling together to get the magazine out. That's when exhaustion set in and many women left, but always enough were still there to push it out to the printer. We fucked it up often, but when it was good, it was joyous, transformative, intellectually stimulating, well-written, and a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you. I didn't even say that Pat Khan 
that I didn't know is here who designed the spare rib tea towel, which were such good quality that they here they are 25 <laughs> years later, and th- that's been used. <laughs> um, if anybody wants to look at spare rib, it's online. The British Library has digitized it. It's online. All you have to do is Google spare rib, um, British Library spare rib, and it comes up, and it's so easy to use, and it's really worth it. So, and they're also in the library here. The hard copies. The hard copies are in the women's library here. That was wonderful, Sue, and thank you for explaining why I was so unfitted for conventional employment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Matt Cook, as many of you will know, is a professor at Birkbeck and one of our foremost historians of queer history and the queering of history, and he's going to talk about domesticity and other issues in the 20th century. Thanks, Anne. Let's see if we can get my... Oh, there's your slide, Sue. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh we should pause and have a look at... I mean, I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> yes, there we are. We were activists as well, because there we are on one of many demonstrations with our spare rib, a women's liberation magazine... Um, banner with our sim- one of our symbols, which was this, which I now notice something that um, um, s- some black music people use all the time. What does it come from? Anyway, somebody tell me. <laughs> of course, for us, symbolized the China. <laughs> I think it might be Illuminati now. Sorry? I think it's Illuminati now. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. There's more, Sue. There's more? Oh, here's my squatters. Yeah. Yeah. We're very lucky to have two of them here as well, at the back. At least two here at the back, here and John. Um, This is... um, So this work on um, the squat... Are you okay? Um, Thanks. No, no, no. Um, Thanks, Gillian, very much for inviting me, and uh, thanks everyone for coming. Um, this work on the squatters comes out of a, a book project on queer domesticity in the 20th century, um, which was a kind of an attempt um, to get to grips with this relationship between queer men and home and family across the 20th century. So kind of, I was kind of battling with some of these stereotypes around you know, queer men on the one hand being exiles from kin, and on the other hand, being seen often as sissy homeboys who had good taste in curtains and quiche. Um, and so what I was trying to do in the book is kind of move to a series of case studies across the 20th century, looking at different dimensions of domesticity and queer relationships with it. And this dance of queer and normal, which I became really interested by. Um, and I landed on the Brixton squatting community as a moment when I think Um, the politicisation of home and family became really explicit. And I would say that home and family were always implicitly politicised, but this was a moment when that politics was much more directly articulated. And I was really interested in how that played out. Um, So what I want to do here really fleetingly, I've only got about 15 minutes, is to touch on just a few of the issues and themes which for me came out um, of, of, of that work um, on, the, on the Brixton squatters, there's lots, lots more to say. So this is very fleeting and far from comprehensive. The first thing probably to say is just something about the squats 
um, themselves. Um, the bricks and squatting community was of around nine houses, some on Railton Road and some on the parallel Mayall Road. Um, and what that meant is that you could have a communal garden between the two sets of houses. Um, so n- walls were knocked down between um, different, gar- the different gardens and people could move between the house- houses fairly fluidly without actually having to go onto the street. Something that a couple of interviewees said actually they, they might go a whole week without actually going out onto Mail or, or Railton Road as they moved between the different households. Now, between 50 and 60 men lived in the squats over a 10-year period from anything from a week to 10 years. So some people were there for the whole period. And in 1982, between 1982 and 1984, um, the squats were absorbed into the Brixton Housing Association. So it kind of ran roughly from 1974 through to 1982-1984. I want to say just a little bit about the formation, the contexts in which um, the squats came about. I mean, the first thing to say, probably in the, uh, this early 70s uh, moment, the difficulty um, for many gay men of actually finding accommodation or, once they found it, of finding that they had to behave with real discretion, that it was really important that people didn't know what they might be up to, that they had to maintain a certain uh, code of behaviour. And in the context of women's liberation and the gay liberation front, um, there was an increasing questioning of having to make home, having to live these discreet lives um, much more overtly, um, and questioning you know, this kind of domestic familial organisation of home life. Um, and these were kind of, I suppose, broad contexts um, in which um, the, the men who, who started squatting in, um, in Railton and Mail Road were coming together. Um, and so what you got in the squats was men who might have shared a philosophy influenced very strongly by GLF and the Brixton GLF. There might be a need for accommodation, a need for cheap accommodation. And there was sometimes, as we see here, a kind of desire, a hopefulness um, for something different. This, <coughs> this guy, I've called him Trevor, dissatisfied with his life in Clapham and drawn to these um, beautiful men and the hope maybe they, they brought with their fresh vegetables and... Uh, <laughs> Maybe other things. (laughs) The broader context um, is the squatting movement in the 60s and 70s especially, and the scale of squatting. So the estimate is that around 50,000 people were squatting in the UK at this time. I suspect it's probably significantly more. And about 30,000 people squatting um, in London. And there was large quantities, such a different... um, situation today, but large quantities of vacant council property, which was too dilapidated to pass on to tenants, um, and so was, 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 was squatted in various particular parts of the city, actually. There, Lambeth, where Brixton lies, was amongst the top five um, councils in, borough councils in, in London for vacant property rates. I think Camden, Islington, Lambeth were, were, were up there. Um, and so there was a lot of property to squat, um, and in Brixton, in addition, there were kind of countercultural precedents. So along Railton Road, there was already women's centres, um, radical black um, squats, 
women's squats. And so there was a kind of countercultural environment there, which kind of, in a sense, opened a space um, for, 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 for gay men who, who, who were looking to squat, squat those streets, especially after the formation of the, the, the Gay Southland and Gay Centre, which was the first, first part of the, the kind of squatting endeavour there. One of the things that I thought was interesting, a couple of people mentioned in interview, was the arrival of the Victoria Line in 1971, which made, interestingly, Brixton quite accessible, and it was easier to move in and out of that area than it had been before. I, I suspect that was more significant for some squatters than others, and that's something to really bear in mind, that the stories that have been gathered about squatters are very much individual stories. And one of the things that really struck me is that while there was a collective experience, it's also true that people told very different stories of their time time in the squats, and that's something I'd really want to, to hold on to. So the material that we have on the squats is, I'd say, incredible, and it's incredible thanks largely to the work of Ian Townsend, who's sitting at the back of the room, and did... You can, you can wave, Liam. <laughs> um, so what we have, and actually this material is here at the LSE, is th um, three sets of interviews. The first um, was um, a set of interviews that came out of uh, in 1983-84 as the SWATs were dissolving. And it was an attempt, I think, to record the experience that the remaining squatters had had over the previous ten years. And I think is a sign already that the men were realising that what had happened there was somewhat exceptional and that there was a record that needed to be made of that period. A second round of interviews with many of the same men um, was undertaken by Ian um, in the mid-90s. I want to say 94, 95. Is it sometime around then, Ian? Yeah. Um, for a history he was writing about um, the South London Gay Centre and, and the squatting community in GLF in that period. Um, that material is all here, along with um, uh, photographs and other materials. The photographs um, that I'm showing here are from, from, that, uh, from that archive. And then when I started work on the squatters, inspired by Ian, I also then interviewed again some of the same people. So there's this incredible um, succession of interviews where you get some of the same people reflecting at different historical moments on that period in the squats. And there's really quite a different flavour that comes out of each of those moments. You know, the last, I think, the round that I did, um, and of course I was an outsider, so there was a different dynamic possibly with the, with the interviewees, but much more, there was much more a wry sense of humour about some of what had happened than there was in, say, 1983-84, when there was considerable frustration um, and, and, and even anger amongst some of the people interviewed. So what arises, what emerges out of this material... Um, the very first slide that I showed described this sense of rupture, this desire um, to break away from these traditions of home and family which many gay men um, and, and women had found so uh, oppressive. And I thought this was really interesting because I think that sense of, 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 of rupture, of, of, of difference was very, very real. Everybody mentions it. But I became very interested as well by the ways in which, in some ways, there were these subtle continuities with lives that had been lived before. So this quote here is from a guy who was brought up in a very large, very poor family um, in Australia. Um, and he said when he moved to London, 
you know, actually these squats in Brixton were kind of perfect because they had this kind of, they, they felt like home in, 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 some, in some way. And in similar ways to one interviewee said, well, you know, what I loved about the squats was this departure from the nuclear family that I'd lived in. And we knocked down a wall and we had communal meals and, and we, we had this big table and we all ate together. And this was the radical departure. Of course, for another squatter who came from Cyprus, he said, well, I love the squats because we had these big meals and it was just like home. Um, so you can see how there might be continuities as well as ruptures from what had come before. Um, there was the, the, the interesting thing, I think, spatially about these, um, these houses was that they were relatively small, two or three bedrooms each. Um, and I'll say a little bit more in a minute about how I think in a way that allowed the squats to be sustained for so long. Um, but of course, there was always the risk with these separate units that people might form rather nuclear um, units. And so there was quite a conscious effort when a couple kind of established themselves, at least at certain periods in this 10 years, when a couple established themselves to draft in an extra squatter to disrupt, to bust the couple um, in, in some way or another. Um, and these homes very deliberately didn't mimic or didn't um, kind of um, didn't become these domestic retreats that was the kind of tradition of home in Britain, but actually became centres rather as Sue was describing of affirmative politics, of activism, making props um, for protests, rehearsing. This was where the Brixton Fairies formed. Um, intent, kind of intense discussions that Sue described with Spare Rib were going on in some of the editorial meetings for Gay Left. And so these were incredibly kind of politicised, productive spaces as well as spaces that the sense I get is a lot of fun and a lot of discussion about washing up and who was going to do it. So one of so the cycle, I mean, there's something quite interesting you were saying about the dole and the availability, ability, the, the opportunity in London not to work been actually really hugely important in terms of the way this politics played out domestically. Um, and also the way in which people involved in the squats engaged in the local community, because despite what I've said about the possibility of being quite enclosed, because of the architecture of the two, of the two rows of houses and the communal garden, there was a real desire to um, engage with local community and local community politics. Mm. Um, and you can see that in the protests outside Brick Brixton Police Station um, in response to arrests of local black uh, men in particular. And you can see it too in the, the, the shows that were put on um, for um, lo at the local old age pe people's home and, and, and pensioners' centre. Here's the Brixton Fairies performing. I love the next shot. This is the response of the, uh, of, of the audience. Um, but although, I mean, so there's this really interesting tension which, if you look at the newspaper coverage surrounding the squats, there was a real resistance in some of the local press about the visibility of these queers. You know, homosexuals were acceptable as under the 1967 um, legislation if they kept themselves to the private sphere, to a respectable home, if you like. And what these queers were doing was quite the reverse. They were making themselves very visible. They were cha channeling that particular version um, of homosexual respectability and discretion um, in really quite interesting and engaged ways. So this wasn't a kind of going to fight the pensioners. This was going to engage them in issues and discussion and performance um, 
And I'd, I'd certainly like to know a bit more about what was said afterwards uh, amongst, the, amongst this audience. Anne, am I running out of time, or am I, how am I doing? A um, couple more minutes. Oh, OK, right. So let me jump forward a little bit. One of the things, so just a couple, uh, just a couple more things then. I think, first of all, I think there's something very interesting about how long these, this community lasted. Because if you look at some of the precedent um, communes, GLF communes in the early 1970s and indeed in, in, the, in some of the later 70s years, they tended to last a year, two years, three years. So this ability to sustain a form of community for 10 years really interested me. And part of it, I, I came up with two kind of thoughts, or rather interviewees came up with, with two or three thoughts. One was around um, the architecture of the space. There was an ability to have both a sense of shared community and a place to withdraw to, I mean, in these individual houses. <laughs> um, and also, there wasn't a dogmatic sense of what the underlying philosophy was. So, yes, there was a shared sense of, of a politics, but there wasn't a kind of prescription, a dogma, that, that um, members of the community had to abide by. And this, of course, led to friction. There was all sorts of different elements and different traditions in some of the different houses. But I think it allowed a kind of rubbing along um, that was more difficult in much more communal space and with much more of a, a kind of shared dogma. Um, I'm going to skip over saying... Uh, I'm going to skip over um, the end of the squats and, and what I think happened there. We can maybe come back to that. But maybe just to say something, we're going to skip through a couple more wonderful images. This is about <laughs> the, the ending of the squats, a rather sad set of quotations around the Brixton uprisings of, of 81... Um, and just end with a sense or, or some, some, some issues around legacy. So one of the, I mean, I found this really quite moving. This is a, a, a guy called Peter who, who I interviewed and actually been interviewed by Ian and, 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 and also in 1983. And he had been a teacher. He went through the experience of being um, in, of the squats and actually developed various skills, including carpentry, and now and subsequently worked as a carpenter in a house in Brixton, which, though he owns, has a kind of communal feel. So there's various people living there, including his boyfriend. And he talks not just about the skills that he acquired in that period, but also an attitude to life and politics, which has kind of stayed with him. And indeed, amongst various of the squatters, there was an enduring attachment um, to Brixton as a place, to that network. Although the friendships drifted and, 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 and moved together again, there was a kind of attachment to that area amongst many of them. Um, and I think um, also a network of care. So several, a number of the squatters died from AIDS-related Ill illnesses in the later 80s. And for a number of them, there was, a, there was an immediate network of care and support there. And also, I think, maybe more complicatedly, it meant that the squats and the squatting period had this kind of position before AIDS. So I think it's held in the memories and accounts of some of the squatters as a time before, a time before this disaster, and has a particular place in memory and history um, in that respect. Um, the, another legacy, of course, is the, um, the um, British and Brixton Housing Association Gay Enclave, which is formed of those squats and endures to this day. So it's still um, a, a gay community of sorts, although now divided into a housing association um, flats. Um, and there's a kind of more, maybe slightly less tangible legacy. Um, on the, I, I interviewed a wonderful um, photographer 
um, and community historian called Ajama X, who founded the Ruckus Black Queer History Archive, which is held at, um, at the LMA. And he talks in really interesting ways about Brixton being home to him. He lives in a Brixton Housing Association flat. Being home to him in part because of the black artistic cultural community, which he said held him in the late 80s and early 90s, but also because of this housing legacy and heritage. So the fact that there had been this very established squatting community, gay squatting community, is part um, of what held him there and what gives him a sense of home in that area. Um, And I think more broadly, there's a sense um, in what the squatters achieved over that ten years, of a sense of excitement that we can carry through to now at queer experimentation. And so we're living in a very different context, but two or three years ago, a group called Queer Option, which is a queer squatting and arts group, um, took up the story of the Brixton squatters in a wonderful um, documentary called Made Possible by Squatting, which you can see actually on YouTube. I'd really recommend it. Um, And I think what that their endeavours to make this documentary suggest is the kind of ongoing queer and domestic inspiration offered by these pioneering Brixtonians. And I'll stop now. Fantastic.